listening to A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library podcast, brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library. And today on the podcast, we've got a great conversation. Amy Heimerell is joining us uh, virtually. She just got back into town here to her home in Michigan. She's a writer. She's a reporter. She currently covers small business, urban policy, and entrepreneurship for the New York Times but she also teaches journalism at Michigan State University. She's also the author of a book, Detroit Hustle, a memoir of love, life, and home, which we circulate here at the library. She actually stopped here at the library about three years ago, right after that book came out to do a signing and an author talk. And we're very grateful that she could join us today. She is, of course, an avid reader because she's the co-founder of the Shady Ladies Literary Society, which has been around for a couple of years. They've been meeting sporadically, I mean, up until the pandemic. They would bring in up-and-coming authors and uh, give exclusive engagements where people could join them in typically eclectic and often ornate uh, places, outdoors usually, and sometimes in graveyards, which we will get to. Amy Hammerl is an award-winning reporter and editor. She's, as I said, currently at Michigan State University. But uh, before, before she got to MSU in 2015, she was a Knight Wallace Fellow at the University of Michigan. So she went from, you know, between rival schools, she went from U of M to MSU. But uh, she'll tell you at the start of this podcast that uh, she is definitely, she is green. She's a Spartan. She's a Spartan now. She uh, actually, rumor has it, she she uh, burned her goat blue sweatshirt. But uh, Wolverines out there, don't hold that against her. She is, as I said, the author of Detroit Hustle, which is a memoir which we talk about here. She's also had her work published in Fortune, and she's uh, also worked as editor at Crane's Detroit Business. And we talk a lot about how she wound up covering the beat of small businesses. It's actually got something to do with her family history. It's also got something to do with how I think she finds a kindredness in folks who have that fortitude to, you know, not not really shy away from doing things, even if they are hard. She admits to always opting to do things the hard way. But this has been, I know this word is said a lot, an unprecedented time, especially for the small business community. So we talk about what it has been like for her, for that to be her beat for the New York Times and what she's been hearing as a reporter covering local businesses, what she's been hearing from the business owners themselves. So we talk about those conversations she's been having. We talk about the experience of writing the book. We talk about shady ladies and we talk about what libraries mean to her, which is, that's a question we ask every guest on this podcast, what libraries, what libraries mean to them and this is the greatest answer we've ever gotten. I'm still, I'm still kind of shaking from it. It was so powerful and moving. So stick around for that. Amy Heimerl is with us, and this is our chat. You know, I love the library, so I'm always happy whenever I get to do something with a library. Right on, and uh, um, a professor at my alma mater too. Go green. See you. Right on. Let's talk about your reporting, Amy. Your reporting covers small businesses along with urban policy. Can we talk about how and when that started to become your beat and what specifically draws you to those subjects for your stories? 
So it was completely by accident that I became a business and economics reporter. I was in college and I knew I wanted to be a journalist, but I took an economics course because I never wanted to walk into a room and not at least know the basics and have some politician be able to tell me something I didn't understand. So I really wanted to get sort of a core understanding of the of the economics of the country. That's a game plan. Yeah. yeah. And it turned out I didn't suck at it. You know, I actually really loved macroeconomics and microeconomics. And the chair of the department was like, we need girls. You too can be an economist. You're now an economics major. And I was like 17. And I was like, well, sir, can I still be a journalist? And he was like, if you must. And that's how I became an economics major. And so when I graduated, my first job out of college was as the editor-in-chief of two business journals, not because I was so fabulous, but because it was in Colorado Springs, Colorado, population of about 40,000. So they were willing to take a chance on me and pay me $18,000 a year to work my butt off and get great experience. And I sort of there fell in love with small business and covering the world from a small business perspective. My father was a small business owner. I grew up uh, in a small business household. He was an excavator, hard rock excavator in Colorado. So I sort of inherently had the empathy that would come from understanding that on one side, you have people assuming the small business owner is rich and, you know, has has everything. And on the other hand, knowing that the small business owner feeds himself last. So it just sort of, I think, was a good mix of interest, life experience and random luck dumping me in that place. Also, something noble about doing it the hard way. Right. I mean, and that kind of ties into to what you did with the house in the in the book, Detroit Hustle. That's, that's something big yeah, to take. I on. always take the hard way. If there's an easy way and a hard way, I will almost always take the hard way. <laughs> um, let's talk about small businesses and covering them. You've been putting out a lot of articles that are really compelling, but also kind of heartbreaking. And I just wanted to know what that has been like, especially the last four to five months when small businesses have been really struggling. I'm uh, I have freelance uh, as a music journalist and I know independent musicians are really struggling and they are going through a lot. What has it been like reporting that and has it taken any emotional toll on you as the reporter? So I've been really blessed to have the chance to cover the small business beat for the New York Times for the past five or six months. I've written for them in the past. And one of the business editors there is an old editor I worked with at a previous job. So when I got the call asking if I'd you know, be willing to come and do some you know, freelancing for them, I was more than excited. And I don't think even then in March and April, I understood what we were about to face. I'm not sure any of us did. My best friend is also a business reporter at the New York Times, also covering small business and banking. And she and I will sometimes call and joke and say we should start the small, you know, business therapy session podcast, because almost every call we do with a small business owner turns out to be an hour, hour and a half call. And it is a therapy session because we're reporters that are so deeply versed in this and we know the policy, but we also know the lived experience. And small business owners aren't often finding somebody who has both of those. They have friends who may also run a business who can empathize from the like, holy crap, we have no idea what's about to happen, but may not understand or have access to interviewing the SBA administrator, things like that. So they are, you know, the most resilient group of people I can ever imagine. You know, when the chips are down, they just have to figure out how to keep going because they have to feed their families. They have to feed their employees. They, there's so much responsibility on their shoulders and they feel it. And it's hard, right? Some are making the choice to close, but most that I'm talking to are still trying to figure out a way to fight their way through and try to stay optimistic. And I guess that keeps me really optimistic as well, that 
you know, the people I'm talking to are sort of saying we are we're going to find our way through this as small business owners, as a community, as a country, as a world, like we're going to find a way through. Kind of along those same lines, over the almost five months now, has there been a common theme or a common sentiment or concern that you would hear from small business owners? I think it's evolved. So in the beginning, it was like, please send cash fast. Like, oh my gosh, how are we going to pay our rent? How are we going to pay our employees? The federal stimulus for small business was a little bit complicated in the beginning. Uh, the ba- A lot of the bigger banks were serving their luxury customers before just their everyday small business customers. So some of that initial relief was slow to come. And so there was just panic about those things. Now I would say they've gotten through that and they're just saying, okay, how are we going to thrive? Like we figured out the survive part, but now what is it going to take to thrive? And if you're a restaurant owner, it's okay, with these lower capacities, how am I ever going to be able to make a bottom line work and be able to pay everybody? I mean, I've literally talked to a, a restaurateur, and I think he was in Tulsa, who told me he and his wife went to a lawyer to discuss divorce as a possible way of preserving the business. Like if they divorce, could they put assets in different people's names in order to be able to try to figure out that solution? You know, other businesses, like I went, I was just in Montana for six weeks uh, taking care of my family. And one fun thing I did is I went out on the Flathead Lake and there was a boat that takes you to this wild horse island where maybe you'll see a wild horse. I did not see a wild horse. Oh, no. upset about the no wild horses. It sounds enchanted. Um, it was enchanted. It was wonderful. I loved it. But when I was talking to the owner of the the, the gentleman who runs boats, because the only way to access this island is, is via boat, he said he's had his best year ever. Oh, so there are some businesses that are really succeeding and thriving during the pandemic because, you know, bike companies, piano companies, people wanting things in their homes to be able to pass the hours, outdoor recreation things. So so I'm, I'm sort of getting it from both sides. But I would say fundamentally, small businesses are saying, don't forget about us. We are the backbone of the American economy. We employ more than 50% of the workforce. Without us, our communities, like our communities dry up. We are they are the support system. They provide the jobs. They also provide the goods and services. Just don't forget about us. Which you must be just I imagine you must be more energized than ever because this is such a crucial time. I th- it must go without saying. Yeah. It yeah, I am. Like I as I said, I feel so blessed that I'm able to do this work for the New York Times right now. You know, I I can't lie. Is there a benefit that when I call somebody and say, I'd like to interview for you for the New York Times, they jump. I, uh, I actually called the Lake Steam Baths in Denver, Colorado, and I had covered them before when I was a reporter in Denver. And the, you know, their employee answers the phone. I say, I'm Amy Heimrell calling from the New York Times. You know, I'd love to talk to the owner. And he puts her on and she's like, this is such a joke, right? This isn't the New York Times calling. And I was like, no, it really <laughs> is. Like, And then, you know, I, the story was a little bit delayed coming out some other things came up and she kept emailing me every day being like do you know when it's going to come out I told my parents and now they're calling me every single day like so there's some it's really energizing to see to be in this position to be able to tell these stories to be able to be that therapy session for these small business owners and also see how excited they are to have their stories told in the pages of the New York Times but I also think that comes with a lot of weight and responsibility Uh, and media in these times. I think we have to be really thoughtful about how we're, how we're presenting people's stories and be really thoughtful that I can walk away the next day and move on to the next story, but they live with whatever representation I made of them in those pages. So I take that 
responsibility very seriously. My goodness. I can't even imagine. That is the top of the mountain. It is It is all the news that is fit to print. It is, it's an icon. But uh, also thrilled that you are there reporting for them, especially as someone who is a big fan of your book, which is our next question. We're going to go back pre-pandemic. We want to know, this is a question you probably got on uh, book signings all the time, but for the podcast listeners, can you re- return to that experience of what was sort of laid out on the pages of the book, Detroit Hustle, but taking on this house and refurbishing it? It sounds like it was quite quite a experience and we want to know how it, I guess, how it just changed you, what you took away from it. Yeah. So I wrote, wrote the book Detroit Hustle, which is ostensibly a memoir of myself and my husband moving to Detroit from Brooklyn, New York, and all the naivety that came in 2012 and sort of growing through that, hopefully, and taking on this house that we bought in the West Village of Detroit long before, you know, the Sister Pie and Craftwork and some of those businesses would open. It was just a neighborhood that we fell in love with, really liked the people, liked, you know, was leafy and pretty. And but we bought a house that had no plumbing and no heating and no water and basically was just a shell and had to be completely rebuilt. It was a big process that still isn't done yet. I mean, all the structural stuff is done. We still need to paint. I've needed to paint for five years. But every time I go to paint, I am not a particularly detail-oriented, good-with-my-hands kind of person. (laughs) And I just have to understand that about myself. You know, there's a... Like, we rebuilt this house. It was a hundred years old when we bought it. And so we tried to do a rehab on it for the next hundred years to bring it back to life. This home used to be the home of Arthur Herzog and his wife, Nona, and Arthur wrote for Billie Holiday. So there were all these like jazz singers that would be in this house at times and these great dinner parties and this great life that was had in this house. And so we really wanted to bring it back for its next 100 years and its next set of stories and great life. But that, again, weighs on me when I go to paint the like new trim that we had, you know, milled hill here in Detroit to be historically accurate. Like, oh my gosh, we could only afford paint grade pine, not stainable oak. But I go to paint it and I'm like, oh my gosh, if I mess it up, what have I done for the next 100 years? No pressure. Um, No pressure. And again, I just need to get the hell over myself and like put some paint on some walls. But so I guess how it's changed me there's, I guess there's two parts of that. One is the book and one is the house. So, you know, the house has really grounded me. I was always a person who went wherever the job was because I just always wanted to be a journalist. I, I don't have children. I knew I never wanted to have kids. What I wanted was a journalism career. And so I went where the jobs were. I've lived in New York and I've lived in Mississippi and Colorado and Michigan and sort of worked all over the country. And the house has grounded me and reminded me how important roots and community are. And I think that's the beauty of Detroit is that it is such a powerful, strong community. What the writing of the book, I think, did, I was coming, when I wrote it, I was coming out of a fellowship at the University of Michigan that I'd got from mid-career journalists. That's what brought my husband and I here to Michigan in the first place. And coming out of it, it felt like I needed to do something great next. And we bought this house and people were interested. So it seemed like a book was the the right thing. Detroit was kind of hot in the media. And so I felt that urgency to do something with that material. And in retrospect, I wish I had waited. So I was writing my story at the same time Detroit was going through bankruptcy. So the, the memoir sort of interweaves the two narratives. But it meant that I think the book is the strongest when I'm talking about my past or getting here. And it's at its weakest when I'm sort of near the end of the story because I was writing the story, not knowing how it ended. I was like, I don't know if we finish this house and is Detroit going to get out of bankruptcy? I don't know. How does it end? How do you write that story? 
And so I can look at the book now and how it's changed me was say, you know what, had I given myself time and not hurried so much, I would have realized better what the themes of my own book were. Like this was my first book. And when the publishers bought it, they gave me 90 days to write it. (laughs) I'd never written a book before. And I was like, sure, I can do that. I can do anything. Again, if there's a hard way and an easy way, hard way. (laughs) So like, I'm like at the library being like, how to write a book in 90 days. Is there a book on that? (laughs) And, you know, I wound up, there was some, you know, challenges with my publisher in the middle. So I wound up getting a little bit longer than that. But I just felt this urgency, like I would never get another shot. And I had to take my shot. Like I'm the first person in my family to go to college. You know, nobody in my family has ever written a book or known somebody who's written a book. Like, it's just not where I'm from. And so I felt like I had to take this shot. And what I wish I could go back and tell myself is memoir is not about the TikTok of what happened like journalism is. It's being able to reflect back on the bigger meaning of that. And I think what my book was trying to be about, you know, if I just had the guts to say it, it would have been called Detroit Hustle Memoir of a Reluctant Gentrifier, right? Like I'm coming into a city, let's like the book is about that. And I needed to just go down that pathway a little bit deeper, do more reporting and really be able to reflect on what that means uh, to be coming into a city like Detroit without with a lot of resources comparatively, but coming from a place where my resources for there were nothing. I grew up in a trailer you know, I, I didn't have family money to help do this, but a lot of that got misinterpreted because of I'm, you know, I'm college educated and where I was coming into the city from. And so I think if I'd just given myself some time, I, I would have loved to have done it with some more nuance. So I'm always appreciative when people read and they like the book because I can also look and say, I'm proud of that book. What I learned coming out of that is sometimes you need time to let things just marinate mm-hmm. and so you can understand them better. And, you know, four years on, I better understand what my book was about. You may have just answered this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because there may be something else to this. Was there any aspect of writing the book, the the research and writing part that you enjoyed that was completely distinct and disparate from the experience of reporting and writing articles? So my best friend would tell you that when I got the book deal, she had no idea if I could be a writer or not. Oh, <laughs> we've been best friends for 20 years. She almost tried to not get me my first job. She was in the interview and told them not to hire me. And afterwards, <laughs> we became best friends. So we are very brutally honest with each other about okay. many things. Okay. And she said, look, I knew you were a good reporter and you could write in a, you know, 1200, 1500 word news hole. No problem. But could you write a sustaining narrative? Mm-hmm. And she said, I was, she's like, I wasn't surprised, but I was that when I started to see the early drafts, I recognized that you were a writer. And so I love the report in all parts of my writing life. I love the reporting and hate the writing. Mm. I deeply detest the writing part. Um, Maybe that's because I'm not trained. I have, I didn't take any English classes in college. I just have taught myself by reading. I was an avid reader as a kid. So it's not that I, I, I don't have an MFA. There's no, no point in my career where I like got taught how to be a writer. I got taught how to report and be a journalist a bit. So I'm a little bit insecure about the writing part. But when I was at the fellowship at University of Michigan, on Fridays, we had a writing class. And that was sort of this magic time where for the first time in my life, we were given prompts and then just the room to write. And that was sort of the foundation of some of the work. And I really liked that aspect of it. And in the book, there are parts where I think I 
really enjoyed that writing part. And I'll, some of the other parts were really hard. Like I remember calling my mentor as I had just decided, like I couldn't write. I'd gone up north and got myself a little cabin to be able to write for a week and just knock this thing out and just couldn't do it. I came back after three days. So I decided that really was the chair that was my problem. If I just had the right chair, then <laughs> sure. all these problems would be solved. Um, and I called her and she was just like, what are you talking about? This is like, you just have to put words on page, right? It doesn't matter what chair or what pen or where you sit. These are all excuses for you not putting words on the page. And she made me cry as she often does. Cause again, another relationship where we are brutally honest with wow. each other. And she was like, look, you're afraid of whatever it is you're about to write. And you're not allowing yourself to go there. Mm. I need you to go write until you're in tears. Whatever it is, write to the heart of that matter until you feel like you've therapized it out of yourself and then let it sit for a few days and then come back to it. And I think that's some of the best writing advice I've given. But also to your question, in the end, somehow the part I enjoyed the most was that hardest, like getting through that and recognizing that a book isn't written in one stretch, one cognizant stretch, like it's bits and pieces and they move around and it's, it's a process. And that sometimes that process involves just sitting down and doing the writing. So your subconscious mind can put on the page what it is you're wrestling with. You said you were an avid reader. That leads us to our, our next question. Oh yes. Uh, how and when did shady ladies get started and what inspired it? It's a literary society, right? Yes. Like, what we, yeah. Oh, okay. So Shady Ladies Literary Society. So I started that in 2017 with just a crazy idea that first time in emerging authors, especially women, rarely get support from their publishing houses. You know, not anything nefarious. It's just there's a lot of books come out and publishers don't really put a lot of money around first time authors unless you happen to be that one like lightning in a bottle like Tara Westover with her book Educated. And I thought, well, what if I could create something that could bring emerging women authors to Detroit to share the story of Detroit with them, change the narrative of Detroit one author at a time, but do these literary events in interesting places that combine food and cocktails and reading and, you know, empowering women and put it all into one thing. So I started with uh, two authors, Julie Bunton, who is from Michigan and now has come back to teach at University of Michigan, and Chris Maracho, both who did sort of these dark summer mystery novels both had teenage protagonists, but one had gotten marketed as adult fiction and one got shoved off into YA fiction. And so we had a really interesting conversation about how and why that happens and how that impacted sales. But we did that story that sorry, we did that meeting at the Elmwood Cemetery here in Detroit. So it was a picnic for about 40 women in a cemetery, not on graves, don't worry. It was like <laughs> Elmwood Cemetery is from that time around the turn of the last century where a lot of cemeteries were built as public spaces and parks. So it's really gracious and beautiful and shady. And it was it was amazing. And so we've been doing events ever since about every two or three months until the pandemic. And right now I am thinking about how does something like that, that is so really about place, how does that continue in a world where we can't really join together in place? I think it's still great that, to, to get these authors on people's radars though, you know. We've it's... had some really great ones. I mean, Elaine Castillo with her book, America's Not the Heart was wonderful. We did have Tara Westover with Educated. Uh, I've had some huge authors come, but I book them before their books are even published. So I'm taking a big chance. I'm not, it's not like I'm getting authors after the fact and they've hit, hit big. Like I'm having to book them 
six months or a year before their books even come out. I uh, attended the one for A Woman Is No Man. Oh, yeah. And that one definitely blew up. So good call on that. And that was also in the cemetery. It was a a lovely evening. Yeah. Etoff is just she's such a delight. I really love her. And I've gotten to make such good friends with the authors through it. So maybe I'm just being selfish and was like, I want cool (laughs) new writer friends. Yeah. And what's cool is uh, yeah, Etoff Room was in she she was in town and she did other speaking events while she was here. So it gives the authors a chance to sort of hang out in town, mm-hmm. which is cool. You, Absolutely. I mean, any anything else we didn't touch on there that you maybe remember that are some favorite experiences since you had started it or even just oh. feedback from attendees? It seems like such what a cool thing. Favorites? Everybody always loves the cemetery and that is sort of, <laughs> I feel like our home base. I love doing them there. Uh, when we had Elaine at the uh, Belle Isle Boathouse was fantastic. You know, and I love like our chef that we work with most commonly is um, Chef Ede of the forthcoming Gabriel Hall. So she always interprets the book through her lens of food, which is always really fun and often will bring emerging chefs with her to do the work. So we get emerging women chefs and emerging women authors. So I, I really am thinking about that pairing and how we create opportunities, especially for women of color. Yeah. We here in the library are having conversations all the time about how we can transform something into the virtual realm. And, you know, you said you were considering it. Have you even had any conversations with folks about what it might look like? Are you thinking about that yet? If you so took when, Shady's- when we first went into lockdown, I started two things. I did daily Instagram lives for about three weeks. I had an author on every single day at three o'clock. And every Friday I did um, what we called our chemistry club, which is Zoom call with experts. So we had Betsy Stevenson, who used to be the head economist for Department of Labor, coming on the day the CARES Act was signed to talk about what federal stimulus was going to mean. We had people coming on who were experts in child psychology to talk about what quarantining was going to do to our children and thinking about school. So it was like every Friday for about a month. We did those and they were wonderful. And I had, you know, usually 100 to 200 people for those and stay for you know, most of the session. But after six weeks or so of that, I was really burned out and realized like I wasn't, it's so much harder. I I don't know if you're experiencing this on Zoom, like in person, we can feel each other's energy. But through Zoom, you have to do so much extra um, emoting and sort of like work with the eyes and engagement to help people really be drawn in that that was really taxing me. And I decided to step back for the summer and say, okay, what was really great? What did I get out of those? What wasn't? And how could I reshape these? Uh, also, almost everything I was doing was free, which is great. But I, you know, I also have bills to pay and start thinking about how do I, I think it's the constant struggle in, in literary events is how do you make them free and accessible, but also recognize the work it takes to create them, especially when you're just a person, I'm not coming with an institution behind me. I'm not a library or a university or something like that. So I, I'm, I'm kind of struggling with with that piece of it. Well, let's talk more about books. What is the best book you're reading right now or have read so far this year? So my favorite books I've read, I, can, I always have so many, but the one that I just read that I can't stop telling everybody about is Codename Hélène uh, by Ariel, I think it's Ariel Lawson. So it's historical fiction, which isn't normally my genre. On top of that, it's World War II, which is definitely not my genre. Uh, but <laughs> And then, you know, it's about 
a British spy who led the French resistance during World War II. And it is a true story. She, you know, Hughes, this author tends to hew very close to the facts. And in the back of the book, we'll tell you where she made composite characters and things like that. But it is about this amazing woman who, you know, stumbles into this world as a spy. She was originally a journalist. She wears victory red lipstick and how she, you know, there's a lot of women spy stories from World War II, but she was actually a leader in the French resistance where the men followed her. And so it's just a really gripping page turning book that, that I can't put down. That sounds awesome. That came out, that came out in March. The one that I'm going to say that everybody should be watching out for that I think come, comes out this month. The title is Eden. Oh, Eden mine. Eden Mind by S.M. Hulse. Okay. It's her second book. It's set in Montana. So I have, you know, this is my, this is my genre. I am mm-hmm. from the rural West. But it starts so powerfully with a woman. She's listening to the radio. And all of a sudden, the newscaster breaks in. And there's been a bombing in the town about an hour away. Courthouse bombing. And her first thought is, oh, shit, was it my brother? And so... From that starting point, we start to actually have like this really interesting look about rural values, rural community, what is home, how do we, what happens when you're the person whose sibling or child does the unthinkable. And so I was afraid the book was going to like center and sympathize with, you know, essentially a domestic terrorist. And it doesn't, it becomes all about the sister and her relationship with the brother, but also her relationship so the only one person dies in the bombing because nobody was really there, but it was this child. And so our main protagonist becomes good friends with her father and their relationship. And it is, I think, deeply powerful and moving. And she was supposed to be coming to Michigan for a Shady Ladies event this month, this Saturday, actually. And of course, we had to cancel. But yeah, Eden Mind by S.M. Hulse. I could not stop thinking about it for days, just like Codename Ellen. So those are my two big reads right now. That's great. If you ever get enough uh, extra time on your hands, you should start a podcast where you describe books because you're very good at it. I feel oh, like thank I, you. I, I want to run out and read books right now. <laughs> you're uh, before we let you go, Amy, you're on a library podcast. You did mention that you did write inside of a library. We'd love to hear just any closing thoughts you have on libraries, your regard of them, your appreciations for them, what you think of them, what your memories are of them, et cetera. So libraries are a really powerful thing in my life. And I always cry when I talk about libraries. So please forgive me. You would think by now I would stop this, but it just can't. So I grew up, like I said, in a trailer, really, really poor in a town of about a thousand people on basically the Colorado, Utah border. And one year for Christmas, the only thing my mother could afford to get me, my mom and dad is my dad got me a globe and my mom got me a library card. And that was Christmas. But the idea was that no matter what, they could open up the world to me through the through the library. And so every Saturday, I was allowed to ride my bike. I'm so sorry. I was allowed to ride my bike to the town library, which was this sort of old stone two-room building with these giant willows over the top of it, so shady. All I ever wanted to do was sit in there and sit under the trees and read my books. And when I'd read through most of the YA section, the librarian there started calling into Denver five hours away to have new books brought out to me. That was, you know, in those pages, I discovered the world. And in that librarian, I discovered that there are people who will help you figure out the world if you ask for it. And so for me, libraries are always going to be that place, not just as like a computer station to be able to look for jobs or, you know, be a resource, but they're a place 
of promise and connection that shows, you know, what we can do, what we can become, because those pages and the people that populate the library are there for us. Gosh, that's so, so powerful. Usually we get memories that are very, very fond and nostalgic, but that's the most powerful answer we've ever heard. Can't thank you enough for sharing. Sorry, I cry. I don't mean to cry. (laughs) I'm crying with you. So if we can. It it translated over the Zoom screen. We're crying over here. Oh, my God. Yeah, libraries just, you know, I wrote it. I did. I did write part of Detroit Hustle at the main library, Detroit Public Library. Yeah. Um, So that was really, you know, it's just such a special place to write. And then I also wrote a lot in Kresge Court at the Detroit Institute of Art. So those were sort of my two main writing spots and i'm so blessed and thankful that detroit has these gems for all of us well we have an appreciation for you amy we have an appreciation for journalists we have an appreciation for those people who are holding up the truth in the pages of the newspapers we have appreciation for all the work you're doing to report on small businesses so we appreciate you and uh, thank you thank Thank you you for all the work you're doing especially now in a pandemic to figure out ways to keep people safe and engaged and able to read right on and one quick note you are a very good writer especially in the book you've got a real good narrative flourish you can almost write a novel one day i'm going to tell you that whether or not you think (laughs) i have a weird kernel of an idea okay i have a guilty pleasure for like summer beach reads like chiclet like there's nothing wrong with little ellen hildebrand like she trashy as hell that's okay (laughs) no i love it but i've kind of got this idea for a trashy as hell summer beach read set on mackinac island and somebody yeah nice oh yeah amy thank you so much for joining us it's been a pleasure thank you so much for having me have a great afternoon And that was our chat with Amy Heimerl. We were so glad that she could join us. Reporter and editor, currently at uh, Michigan State University teaching journalism, but also currently doing some great and very important work for the New York Times, covering the small business scene in these times. This is A Little Too Quiet. It is the Ferndale Library podcast, brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library. Librarian Michelle Williamson was the other voice on this podcast who joined me. She usually joins us for our information literacy installments, but she joined me today. We are always glad to have her on the podcast. My name is Jeff Milo. The music for this podcast is brought to you by local musician John Duffy, and we have plenty more to come here in season two of A Little Too Quiet. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.